Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. If you could dissect a seed and see with your eyes the smallest parts of it, you would find in that one small seed a blueprint of the entire tree to come. is there. It needs only water and soil and sunshine. But all of the data needed to form this remarkable massive tree is in that tiny seed. It's there. This is a seed so small that if you passed it on the road you would give no attention to it. But eventually in the right circumstances it will become a tree so large that you have to walk around it. That you can no longer ignore it. So it might seem small and insignificant but it has within itself everything that will lead to what is large and not in any way insignificant. And we could say exactly the same thing about the life, the death and the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, whose story we've considered for two years now in the Gospel of Luke. And sure, when we look back on the earthly life and death of Jesus that we've been reading, it does seem significant, doesn't it? Large and significant because we know 2,000 years of church history, especially European church history behind us. So of course we know that this Jesus in our text today who stands just east of Jerusalem with this small ragtag group of disciples is a significant figure because we see the tree. But at the end of the Gospel of Luke, it's still just a seed. No one in the larger Roman world is giving any attention to what's happening among this small group of people east outside of Jerusalem. Because it's just a seed. His most loyal followers who are there present, they're fishermen. People whose names you and I should never expect to know. Just like all the other ancient Near Eastern fishermen that you don't know about. The military conquests of Rome, those are significant. And those are rightly recorded in your history books. Everyone knew those were massive, important events. Those are trees, but what's happening east of Jerusalem at the end of the Gospel of Luke, it's just a seed. In an earthly sense, it's one of the most insignificant things happening in the whole ancient world. There's no battle, there's no glory, there are no massive crowds. It's mostly unknown to almost everyone in the ancient world. But today when we look back, we can all acknowledge That that figure, Jesus of Nazareth, and what was taking place there on that mountain, east of Jerusalem, is one of the most significant in all of history. Whether someone here were a believer in Jesus as the Son of God or not, we can all just historically acknowledge that that figure, Jesus of Nazareth, now looking back, he has shaped the course of the world more than any other individual figure ever. No one parallels him. That person, who at that time seemed very insignificant. No dead figure of history can match him. None of the great emperors of Rome, who were great in their day, 
Their significance pales next to this, what, unlearned rabbi from the north? Now we know because there's a tree and we look back and we can see the seed. European history is a history of Christian influence. Everything that happened in European history has in many ways an origin there what's happening at the end of the Gospel of Luke. Everything from the early ecumenical councils of the Roman Empire, which after 313 AD was Christian, at least in name, because of this rabbi, east of Jerusalem, took his very name. To the Christian barbarians who supplanted Rome when it fell, to the rebirth of Roman Christendom afterward in the medieval world that lasted a thousand years, to the Reformation, to the Enlightenment, fundamentalism, evangelicalism, rightly or wrongly for all of these complicated skeins, rightly or wrongly, all of these find their origin in what's happening at the end of our text. This is the tree of influence of Jesus, and in our text, we are seeing the seed that will lead to it. You say, well, that's just European, but you know that Jesus' influence extends so far beyond European history. That's just one of them. In fact, Christianity alone of every major world religion has traveled pretty much all the way across the globe in terms of its center of influence. It started in the Middle East, right here. That's where it began to grow in Palestine, and then it shifted into the Mediterranean through the efforts of Paul and other missionaries. It was in North Africa that was a major base of Christianity, and there in Italy and Rome, and then it moved northward into Europe and England, and then eventually came over westward across an ocean into the New World. And now in our own day, we see it in some ways shifting southward to the southern hemisphere and exploding in parts of Asia. All of that massive tree that you can look at now starts as a seed right here, east of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. The tree of Christianity is massive. It's bigger than any of the garden plants around it, you could say. Yet if you had stood with Jesus' earliest followers east of Jerusalem this day at the end of Luke, it wouldn't look like that. You only know that in hindsight. It just looks like one rabbi among the Jewish people, despised by his own people and by the Romans, cast away and rejected, now standing east of Jerusalem with a small band of followers. That's what it looks like. Yet in that seed are the trajectories of what will literally shape the entire world, including your life. So let's look at this seed here at the end of the Gospel of Luke, verses 50 to 53 of chapter 24. Then Jesus, he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. Here is Christianity as a seed. 
in the person of Jesus as he departs, as he has just commissioned his earliest followers and they are to wait in Jerusalem till they receive power. And that will be the birth of the church, which will go on to change all of history. But right here you can see it's just this tiny seed. If you were to cut into this little seed to find the data that will produce this massive tree, all you see is one small rejected man, a rabbi from the north, and his mostly fishermen disciples. And there they are gathered outside of Jerusalem. And yet one day, this man's influence will grow until it is a massive tree, the top of which can be seen from the corners of the earth. And so our goal as we come to this final passage is to recognize it as Winston Churchill spoke of the end of the beginning. This is the end of the beginning of what Jesus has done in this world, of his earthly life and his ministry, but it sets a trajectory for the rest of history up until today, and it is ongoing. And what we want to do today as we come to the end of Luke is not to leave this as though it were some dead text, some historical document with no modern relevance. This sets the trajectory for history and for your life today. And what we want to do in Luke is to consider how it does that. And we will see how this foreshadows the rest of church history by looking first at the actions of Jesus in this brief text, and then finally at the actions of his followers, which concludes the whole gospel. So let's consider these two, and we are looking first at the behavior of Jesus in these verses. How do his actions foreshadow 2,000 years that will follow. The beginning of the book of Acts, you may remember, speaks of, it's the same author, Luke, he's writing of the church now, and he speaks of the gospel of Luke as all that Jesus began to do and teach until he was taken up. So that was only a beginning. So how do these actions, the end of the beginning here, point forward to the rest of the story? Acts and beyond. We'll look back at verse 50. It says, And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. I could probably say a lot in this passage if I wanted to about that very first part of that first verse. He leads them out toward Bethany. That is, out of Jerusalem, as far as we can tell. They leave Jerusalem. They are going eastward. Bethany sits about two miles to the east. It's where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. It's a place where Jesus occupied on the last week of his life. Several evenings he stayed there. And it is on the far end from Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives. So they are on the Mount of Olives somewhere near Bethany. And is leading them out. In some ways that foreshadows many things I suppose that you could say. The fact that they are leaving Jerusalem for this final act, this ascension of Jesus, could point, maybe, to the fact that Christianity, which would start sort of in the bosom of Judaism, would by the end of a century be clearly distinguished, removed from its parents, so to speak, as the fulfillment of all that Judaism hoped for. So they go out from Jerusalem, the center of Judaism. Okay, we could also talk about how the Christians would go outside the city because they would be outcasts in the rest of history. This is true. Hebrews 13 uses this picture. It says, Jesus also suffered outside the gate of a city. 
in order to sanctify the people through his own blood, therefore let us, Christians, go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here, in Jerusalem we could say, we have no lasting city, but we seek that city there where he's ascending that is to come. We could talk about that. <laughs> However, with any sermon, we have to be selective. And those are a little less certain of connections. And so I want to move past that beginning of Jesus leading them out and move to this, what we'll consider his first action after doing it here. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. Here at the verge of the beginning of a new history, the final act of Jesus before he ascends that the church may commence is that he blesses his followers. It was not uncommon in the Old and New Testament worlds for a person to raise their hands as you see that Jesus does anytime that they're doing something that's connected to the divine. So people would raise their hands sometimes when they were praying or sometimes when they were swearing by the Lord Most High. Other times while they were worshiping, some persons still do today. But what Jesus does here really resembles most one event in the Old Testament, which was when the, when the priest Aaron, the very first priest of God's people, when he and his sons were consecrated to be priests over the course of seven days, on the eighth day, they blessed the people. It says, then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people, and he blessed them. Luke has not drawn attention throughout his gospel very much to the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of Aaron and the whole Old Testament priesthood. That is true, but it's drawn on elsewhere such as in Hebrews. Luke hasn't focused on that. I don't know if that's in his mind here with Jesus lifting his hands and blessing his people. That is possible. But what is clear, regardless what this means, if it's his priesthood or not, is the fact that Jesus, as a final act, this is it. And it seems he's doing it as he's ascending, we'll see, while he's ascending, while he's blessing, he ascends. This is the last thing he does for his people. He blesses them. And there could hardly be a better picture, foreshadowing, of 2,000 years of Christianity that would follow, then for Jesus as he ascends at the end of this gospel to be blessing his people. This is the proper posture for Christianity itself. Because what's going to happen is as he blesses them and ascends and is received by a cloud and is gone, they will return in joy and before very long, the wolves of the world will gather together and obliterate them. These are persons who shall be led to the slaughter. These are people who will be persecuted, hated, rejected by their own families. Jesus has predicted that this would be the case. He said, some of you they will kill. And that will happen. And within a hundred years time, Rome will be taking Christians, throwing them to lions in the Colosseum for entertainment. So what do you make of Jesus' last act being a blessing on his people? Someone might look at that and think, if that's a blessing, I want a curse. <laughs> because it doesn't look like a blessing based on the circumstances that will follow. At least those 11 of his closest disciples who will be apostles, they will all die violently 
one of them not violently but in exile, how can Jesus bless them? In fact, the very fact that this Jesus, who's the most important person in their lives, is while he's blessing them, leaving, doesn't seem like a blessing either. And this is a fitting foreshadow of all of Christianity because that's exactly how Christianity will look for 2,000 years. Christ in his teachings made clear that he came to bring what we can call a great reversal. Where the things that we naturally think are great, God doesn't. The things we naturally think are bad, God elevates and exalts. This was in Jesus' own life. He was despised and crucified in greatness. But it didn't look like it. And then he was resurrected for glory. This is going to be Christianity. You can see this, for example, if you remember back to chapter 6 of the Gospel of Luke. All of the things that you and I naturally think are very good blessings. When Jesus blesses his people, we expect these are the things that will follow. See what Jesus says about them in Luke 6. Riches, those are good. Money's nice. Jesus says, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Having a full stomach, having food to eat is good. It's a blessing. Jesus says, Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. You like to be at a party where there's laughter and joy. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. You want people to think well of you. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. What? That doesn't seem like things to be woe to. That seems like blessing. That seems like when Jesus extends his hands, that's what you expect to follow. But in Christianity, from the time of Jesus on to now, there is a great reversal. So what is blessedness? What is blessing if it's not those things? Jesus says in Luke 6, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you. Doesn't feel like a blessing. And revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Is that what you do when you're excluded? Leap for joy. For behold, here's why, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. This attitude of a blessing ascending into heaven, literally, this is the attitude of Christianity that will and does set it apart from every other religion and system of belief in the entire world. If Christianity taught, if Jesus taught that when he blesses you, if you follow him, he blesses you, that means you will have wealth, you will always have perfect health, you will always have earthly prosperity, then if you were happy about that, it would make sense. It would make sense to your lost neighbors. It would make sense to an unbelieving world. You don't need Jesus for that. That's a very natural reason to feel happy. 
If Islam could give you that kind of blessing, you'd be a happy Muslim. You could be a happy Mormon. You could be a happy Jew. You could be a happy anything. That's natural and normal. Your life's going well. Things are easy. You have money in your bank account. You have lots of food. You have people who think well of you. You have great honor and you are smiling. Whoop-de-doo. Anyone would do it. Anyone would do that. That is not Christianity. Christianity will be, for 2,000 years, true Christianity up to today will be distinguished from every other sort of belief system because it doesn't just produce happiness, joy, blessedness, a full life when everything's going really well for you. But for most Christians throughout history, things have not gone really well. Because like Jesus says, when you suffer these things on account of the Son of Man, there's been persecution, there's been suffering. And yet, Christians throughout history can say with all honesty, we have lived blessed lives. That's not normal. But that's the legacy that this Jesus leaves on his disciples ascending to heaven. This indomitable joy, it is not because Christians are sadistic. We don't like pain. Do you like to be poor? Do you like to suffer? Do you really thoroughly enjoy it when everyone thinks evil of you, really hates you and slanders you? Do you just take that to heart and cherish that? It's a good feeling. <laughs> no, you don't. you don't. No, we don't. We're human. Cut us, we bleed. We don't like those things, but when Jesus makes this great reversal, why? It's because of where he's going. You see him? When he's blessing his people, he's ascending into heaven. And when Jesus reverses these beatitudes, these blessings upon his people, blessed are you who are poor, why? Because poverty is wonderful. If you've ever lived in it, you know it's not wonderful. Because you will be rich in heaven. You're hungry now. It doesn't feel good to be hungry. But you are blessed if you're hungry because you're following Christ. Because you will be full. As Jesus lifts his hands on this hill, blesses his lowly followers, his blessing's not in vain. It's not like it didn't stick. It's because he's ascending to a place from which he can see more clearly that no matter how horrible life may be here for Christians, and at times it's very horrible. We are, as Paul says, considered the scum of all the earth. That's how we're treated. This is to be expected, but from the perspective of heaven, it is small, momentary, light affliction compared to the glory that's to be revealed. Yours is the kingdom of God. So when Jesus blesses this small band, he's blessing them because theirs is the kingdom of God. Not because their lives are going to be easy. And that's been true for 2,000 years of Christians suffering great persecution. And even when not suffering persecution, suffering in other ways. If you doubt, again, like I said, that Jesus' blessing is focused on heaven, well, you can see it in what he does as he's blessing. Verse 51, while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. If his blessing foreshadows Christian history, how does this ascension set us up 
for the rest of two millennia of church history. Well, this is a clear foreshadowing of how the church will function. Look around you. See the pews around you? Not pews. These are seats. You see the seats around you? Search and see if you find Jesus sitting anywhere here. I mean, here we are as those who have dedicated our entire lives. The blessing, the blessedness of our lives includes great persecution and suffering for his sake. We've given everything to follow him. We would die for him at the drop of a hat. Where is he? Have you ever thought of that? That's kind of unusual. That the person we follow, you've never seen him physically. He's never been physically present. He's never come to this church. And yet he's the one this is all about. That is most unusual. How can this be? Well, this answers that question. Because as he blessed his disciples, here, many days after his resurrection, he ascended up into heaven. He is physically absent and would be physically absent from his people in the age of the church. Doesn't look like a blessing again, but it is. It is because of all that this ascension, which is what we call it, all that this ascension of Jesus means for the church today, even for you and for me. Yeah, it would be really convenient to have Jesus here in the flesh if he would just descend and then would speak and clear up all the confusion about crazy cultural things that are happening and would bring all of his enemies to submit under his feet very easily. Wouldn't that be really convenient? And yet, his physical absence is so convenient for you as a Christian that it's worth him staying in heaven for the time being. So how can this be a benefit for 2,000 years of church history without Jesus physically present? It is because when Jesus ascended, Scripture says he ascended into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. This is what we call in theological terms the session of Christ. It just means the sitting of Jesus. Where is he now? He's sitting at the right hand of God. Hebrews tells us after making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's why he ascended. Again, the end of the Gospel of Mark in your Bibles, those last few verses, you will find a footnote because they probably are not original, but instead were Christian tradition from a very early date that some scribe added in. So likely true, but not part of the Gospel of Mark. And yet that early tradition at least says this. So then the Lord Jesus, after he'd spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. It is better for us to have our master absent and seated at this throne of glory than for him to be present and literally to hold your hand, to hug you, to walk with you. How can that be? How can he bless them as he departs? How can he leave them and yet consider them blessed? And for 2,000 years, it's because of where he goes. Where is Jesus right now? Jesus sits upon a throne in heaven, however that works. That's where he is. And he sits there as a token, as an emblem of his absolute authority that has been given to him on earth. In fact, our very commission as disciples to make disciples of all the nations 
is based upon the fact that Jesus sits upon that throne. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, you go make disciples. We need him to sit upon that throne. We need him to have that place of highest exaltation. You need that for your Christian life. 2,000 years of Christianity, Christians have needed that more than they've needed Jesus to come in the flesh and embrace them as they wept their grief. You need him upon the throne. It might not feel that way sometimes. You feel like you'd rather have his immediate embrace and yet it is better, he said, for me to go. And therefore he went because he went to the throne. This is not just symbolic. You say, he, why can't he have authority and be on earth? <laughs> That'd be nice. Well, he does. It's not just a symbolic sitting on his throne because there's more that he's doing there. The Apostle John, one of those who watched him ascend into heaven, later wrote, If anyone does sin, is that you? Have you ever sinned? If anyone does sin, now what? John says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Seated at the right hand of the Father, Jesus in his physical body, in some way, advocates for your innocence. If we were in the Old Testament and we had an earthly, mortal, human priest offering sacrifices and interceding before God for our innocence, that would give us some comfort. But we have infinitely more comfort, as the author of Hebrews says in 725. It says, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. Why can you be saved to the uttermost? Those who draw near to God through him. Why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's what Jesus does in heaven. That's why he has to leave to sit on the throne and to intercede for you specifically. He knows how many hairs you have upon your head. He knows how many sins you commit and he advocates with the father on the basis of his own sacrifice saying this person is innocent. And you might think well is that really necessary? Well it happens so it is. <laughs> Why would he do it if it's not necessary? He advocates to give you confidence. Because in this world, your conscience, others, if you're a genuine believer, will come and will condemn you. The devil will work to cause you to question your own salvation. And what would it matter to you if Jesus stood in the flesh before you and you had no assurance of his acceptance of you? Or of eternal life? Or of hope? It would mean nothing. But the fact that Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father and there he himself has taken up your case and advocates for your innocence is what gives you the confidence and Christians for 2,000 years to go out and proclaim him joyfully and to die if necessary. Because Jesus always wins his case. Who is to condemn, Paul says in Romans 8, because many will try well, Paul responds, Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, and we could almost say more than that, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Indeed. Like, really, he's doing that. This isn't a fairy tale. He's there 
interceding for you today so that you can be innocent and have hope that you will live forever, that the kingdom of heaven is yours, that God will not cast you away because of your sins. So when Jesus ascends, blessing his disciples, it's not a farce. He knows just how much he's blessing them by going to have authority to intercede for them. And really that authority that Christ has over his church and the world and the forgiveness that he offers and secures for his people, together you could hardly better foreshadow the history of Christianity. That's what it's about. So you see this foreshadowing, this seed that will grow in the actions of Jesus in our text. But now as time escapes us, we have to shift to the disciples. How do their actions, really their reactions to Jesus, foreshadow what the church will be following afterward? The start of the Gospel of Acts informs us that when this event happened and Jesus ascended, they were looking, he was received by a cloud, disappeared from their sight, and then two angels stood in the presence of these disciples and said, why are you looking up there? Go be about your business because Jesus will come just as you saw him go up. That's why we await his physical, bodily return to earth. But Luke isn't interested in that. In fact, he skips right over that because he wants to focus here at the end of his entire gospel, all he has had to say, he wants to place the focus on the reaction of the disciples at the very end. And that's where we focus now too. Because this will lead into Acts, which is the church, the book of Acts, and onward. Look at verses 52 and 53, and here we end our gospel. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. They have to go back into Jerusalem after this Departure of Jesus, a sort of, you would think, an anti-climax after having followed Jesus, seen his resurrection, and now he is gone. You might expect grief, even a lethargy. What do we do now? He's gone, and yet you find just the opposite in his disciples. They recognize the importance of what's taken place, and so they return, it says, with joy. They're animated in the true sense of that term. They have energy. They are active. That's how the gospel ends, not with them despairing, grieving, and sitting down, but with activity. Even as they're waiting, there is a joy and a worshipfulness here. Joy and worship are the two ways that Luke ends this gospel. And they do set the trajectory for the rest of Christianity, even to our own day. I mean, that joy is the paradox that Christianity has always been, the paradox of your very life as a Christian. You suffer. Why do you have joy? You are, of all men and women, most to be pitied. Why do you have joy? And why have Christians for two millennia had joy in the face of unbearable circumstances? This is not a joy that's like in Luke 6, woe to you who laugh, not a light flippant kind of happiness. This is not like in Psalm 73, those who the psalmist says their eyes bulge from fatness, sort of a self-luxurious happiness, the sort of shallowness that you may find among some who are rich and famous. I won't say all, 
But that shallowness, that sort of painted on, that veneer smile, that's not what Christianity truly is. Christianity has provided a serious and a weighty joy, just like these disciples felt as they re-entered Jerusalem. They know because Jesus told them that hard things lie before them, that through many tribulations they must enter the kingdom of God, and yet that pressing down from above does not crush or kill their joy. They enter in not just with joy, but Luke says with a great joy, a mega joy, a, an immense joy, even though they will die. And isn't that Christianity? Hasn't that been Christianity? Set apart every other system of belief. This great joy. This is a weighty joy, not like a college student who has wasted themselves at party after party. When you first get to the party, you kind of feel happy. That's an empty joy. It's going to be gone fast. This is the joy like those who fought in World War II and came to the end of that long war and returned back to the States mixed with an overwhelming relief and joy that the war was over, together with the memory of the sorrows and the griefs and the losses that they faced. It's that sort of weighty joy that has been the heritage of Christianity. In fact, it's your inheritance, if you are a Christian, to have that kind of weighty, meaningful, not flippant, young, immature happiness, but a weighty Joy, just like these disciples felt as they returned to Jerusalem. That has been Christianity, and together with that, really the very last point that Luke makes in his entire gospel is that they worshipped. Verse 53, we no longer find disciples who have the door locked for fear of the Jews like they did before Jesus' resurrection on the day he resurrected, but now they come into the temple and openly and gladly they are, it says, continually there blessing God. In this way, they are good Jews because Christianity is born out of the bosom of Judaism. So they are as Jews returning and in the temple worshiping, although it's going to go far beyond the temple. But even that final note of them blessing God doesn't distinguish Christianity from other systems of belief. It isn't a defining characteristic of Christianity because Muslims worship God. In English, they can call him God, using that term. Pagans worshiped gods. There are many who worship God or gods, however you define him. But the thing that would distinguish Christianity from this point in Luke on for thousands of years is what you find just before in verse 52. And they worshipped him. Did you see that? <laughs> they worshipped him. And the him is not God the Father. Who is the him? At the end of the Gospel of Luke, one of the clearest statements of Christ's divinity in the whole New Testament. They worshipped him. Jesus Christ. And if that's not Christianity, what is? That is what has set Christianity apart. 
that we worship God as a triune God, the second person of which is Jesus Christ. We are not ashamed to worship Him. It's not tritheism. We're not polytheists. We worship Jesus. And therefore, it is as if here, Luke, the physician, is leaving us with the same challenge that he's leaving Theophilus, the original recipient of this letter whom he named at the beginning in chapter 1. He's leaving him, and it seems leaving you, by description, a challenge. And it is, is that you? That's them. That's the church. Is that you? Do you worship Jesus? And do you worship him in the way presented here? This would be foreshadowing as a seed the great tree of Christianity that would grow. And scripture says the birds would come and nest in its branches. Do you nest in its branches? It's not automatic. Being born in America doesn't put you in its branches. You can be outside of it. Is that you? Do you worship Jesus Christ in truth? You see these early disciples? This wasn't just something they added on to their life. This was their life. Continually in the temple, blessing God. And when the Spirit of God came, their entire devotion would be to spreading the message of Jesus Christ. They would live for Him. They would die for Him. That man ascending into heaven changed everything about their life. Is that you? Of course everyone says, we worship Jesus. We're in America. That's what we do. Pretty much everybody does this. No. Do you worship this Jesus, the one whom we've seen throughout the Gospel of Luke in kindness and grace, him extending his hand to the leper and touching the unclean, he who is the friend of sinners? Have you come to him? He who is now exalted on the right hand of God, is that the Jesus you worship? He offers you eternal blessedness. And there are many here in this room who will taste and see and experience the blessedness that Luke portrays. There are many in this room whom Jesus extends his hand and he says, you are blessed because yours is the kingdom of heaven. And there are others in this room who throughout the gospel of Luke, even to this point, that is not you yet. And my final plea with Luke as he presents this to Theophilus is, do you worship Jesus in truth? He will receive you if you will come to him. He, by that very power he sent at Pentecost, can change you. You don't have to change yourself. You have now seen Jesus of Nazareth, this small seed that has grown. And here is the moment of decision. Here is the valley of decision. Multitudes and multitudes here. Will you live your life safe in the city of Jerusalem, away from him in comfort? Will you go outside the city to him and be among the blessed? And I encourage you, if you've not placed your faith in Christ, to do that. His wages are better than any other wages. Let's pray. Lord, we could almost weep in thinking of how far you've taken us through your word here in the Gospel of Luke. And I don't know when we began this Gospel if we could have guessed or anticipated how necessary it would be for us, the trials that we would face individually and as a church and as a nation. And yet I do genuinely feel that these words of life have carried us, have carried us through trial, have comforted us in difficulty have given us life and energy when we were weak and tired. They've corrected us when we were unruly. 
and they have led us in the everlasting paths. Lord, our hearts at the end of this book beat and burn and yearn for more of your word, to know your will, to be Christians indeed, those who follow in the train of those early Christians gathered outside Jerusalem, those who have joy in the face of difficulty because we have here the words of eternal life. Jesus, I pray that in these two years you have been glorified. And I pray that as we move now into other parts of the scriptures, you would be glorified in our lives. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.